Good evening, and welcome to our pastor's class as we're coming towards the end of our 50 core truths, and uh, we're coming right up on the last couple of weeks. If you had a schedule, you've been tracking along with us, and, and really what we'll do is we had three, three topics scheduled tonight. I'll actually do two of those, and then next week the pastor will conclude talking about the new heaven and the new earth. Now, before we get to that, tonight we have two joyous topics that I, I can tell everybody came out for tonight, um, <laughs> is we're going we're gonna to deal with the final judgment and eternal punishment. So, not every night that you get those two topics at church, uh, but as a part, of, uh, a part of our time, we're coming to the end of this 50 core truths and uh, I appreciate all the feedback we've gotten and the interaction uh, because some of these topics are are a bit challenging sometimes to teach and to do it in an interesting way uh, where it's engaging and you don't run off on some theological you know rabbit trail but at the same time give you an introduction to each of these ideas hopefully the course of this year it's been uh, encouraging to you and as any sort of study of God theology it ought to be something that plays out practically for your walk with the Lord as well. In particular, tonight, though, will be a topic that uh, is fairly heavy in the sense that, you know, dealing with a, a final judgment, which we as Christians will look forward to, the great rewards found in that, but as we're going to take a turn at the end to look towards eternal punishment, uh, it's a very serious and, and can be a very difficult subject for us to address. And so, um, as we approach that, you know, part of the reason that we think so much about missions, you know, as a church we talk about sending mission trips, we spend a whole lot of money planting churches, sending missionaries around the world, sending mission teams. We talk a lot about sharing the gospel and speaking the gospel to the people that you're around. Uh, every time we do a ministry or an, an outreach or some sort of thing we do, we always want to speak the gospel to people. Well, behind it all is an understanding of a final judgment that has great significance to people. And so, what we'll talk about tonight drives much of what we do as a church because we understand the serious nature of this topic. You know, oftentimes, uh, the question shows up, what happens after we die? Now, we've dealt a little bit, a couple weeks ago, I talked about what we call the intermediate state to where you know, kind of where we go, but, it, but, but in reality, the whole big picture, what is it that you face when you die? What's the, what's the grand scheme of things that we face? And in particular, what we're going to focus on these first few minutes is the final judgment. There will be a judgment for all mankind. And it's not a middle judgment, it is a final judgment. So I'll read the description to you here in the summary. Hopefully you have a handout there in front of you. It says, the final judgment is the future 
universal, public verdict rendered by Christ, Christ, in which he will evaluate all human beings and angelic beings. So there'll be this moment where publicly, universally for all people, in the future, Christ will render judgment on all people and all the angels. So this is what happens when we die. So if you, if you think about it, built inside of each person is a universal sense of fairness and justice. In each one of us, we have a desire, a, somewhat of a craving for justice. Even in the most ungodly corners of our culture, there's still somewhat of an understanding of justice, of right and of wrong. We have laws and courts and judgments to be made. Even when we're born, if you think of kids, if you had kids for any length uh, part of your life or been around them, even from the very beginning, they uh, have a sense of fairness, right? They're playing with a toy, another kid comes up and takes the toy, this isn't fair, right? It's an immediate sense of fairness. Or, if you were to take two children that did the exact same thing and punish one way more than the other, they know immediately that's wrong. They, they have a sense at which, from the very beginning, there is right and wrong. So... Um, in our world, built inside of each one of us is this sense of justice. See, you even see it in movies. If you watch movies and see uh, the way movies will play out, usually there is a, there's always a kind of a good guy, bad guy paradigm, you know, your protagonist, antagonist. But, but oftentimes they set it up with this, you know, the antagonist does real well for a long time, and then the story resolves with this sense of justice, that the good guy wins, the bad guy loses. I mean, it's found from cartoons when you're a kid to older. It's, just, it's a story that's fulfilling to us because it's, it's built into the fabric of who we are. So the final judgment feels, in a sense, right to us that there would be some sort of scales and justice weighed out at the end of all time. So let's look at a few things about judgment. Uh, we'll start in the Old Testament. I'll just walk through some biblical texts, and that'll draw us up to the picture of what the final judgment will look like. First, we'll start in the Old Testament uh, with this verse uh, from Zephaniah 1.14. Uh, starting in verse 14, works its way down to 16. The, the first phrase, I'll just point out, I'll read through it, provide some commentary as you look at it. It says, the day of the Lord is near. So just to pause on that phrase for a minute, oftentimes you look in the Old Testament, the idea of a coming day of judgment is referred to as the day of the Lord. So when you see that written uh, Old Testament-wise, you'll see that phrase, if you want to underline it there in your notes, the day of the Lord is near. Oftentimes the Old Testament will refer to it as near. It's not, it's not far away. Don't treat it as if it's not coming. But there will be a day of the Lord near for you. It is coming that judgment will happen. Notice it's like the day that the Lord shows up, in a sense. It's His day. The day he will judge. Similar to, um, you know, I didn't realize when I was uh, younger how much work parenting could be. 
I didn't realize how much like disciplining your children was just work. I mean, you just people that don't discipline their children, it's just laziness, right? It's you go to discipline your children. I mean, you say it for her, and you're like, I just want to sit here for one minute without having to stop you from doing whatever. And sometimes, you know, you'll say something, don't touch that. And as soon as they touch it, you're like, why did I say that? I wish I had never told you not. Now I've got to discipline you because you didn't obey me. Should just let you touch it to start with, you know? So all that to say is imagine if I took my three kids, I let them go upstairs, and they start playing. They were playing outside yesterday. It's nice outside. And so I was inside and upstairs in my house, and all of a sudden I hear the scream of one screaming at the other, right? So, so they've been left alone for a while, and then things start, they unravel, you know, they, people start fighting. But then there's this moment where they may be able to play for so long like that, but then there's a day, a minute, a time that mom and dad come and render justice, right? There's a sense, one day the anarchy will cease and justice will happen. And so in a sense, the same way, we live in this world as if mom and dad have stepped out for a minute and things may happen, people may get away with some things, things may not be exactly right, but one day, the day of the Lord is near. And so these things will be made right. Notice also the idea of destruction on this day. Listen to the phrasing here in, in the text. It says, The day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day, the Lord is bitter, and the mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom and a day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. There's a sense at which there is judgment attached to this, and it's divine judgment. It is God rendering judgment on man. But ultimately, Christ will be the judge. You think about God as judging, but the authority has been delegated to Christ from the Father. So in a sense, the Father is doing the judgment, but Jesus is the one he has delegated that to. Look at John chapter 5 there in your notes. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So Jesus is the one he's handed over judgment to. Two. Uh, Acts 17, 31, I don't, I don't think I put that one in there in your notes, you can just write it down, speaks about how the day of the Lord is a fixed day. It's, it's, there is a day one day that God knows he will judge, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. So there's a sense at which he has already fixed this day of judgment coming. Now, both believers, I'll get to this a little bit more in a moment, but both believers and unbelievers will experience this judgment. And it's called, Revelation chapter 20 refers to this judgment. It's called the great white throne of judgment. I like to read, if you're going to see a particular verse of Scripture that alludes to what this will look like, this might be the key Scripture on this doctrine in Revelation 20. It says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found 
for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to, and we'll come back to this phrase in a moment, according to what they had done. This will play into some more conversation here. Verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So this is the, well, I'll mention this, I'll get to it in a minute, but verse 14 is this eternal punishment. This is kind of the finality to it all. We talked about the intermediate state, uh, but ultimately this will be uh, the resting place of those under eternal punishment. Verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So Christ is appointed here to render this judgment on mankind for all of us. Um, and I'll get to this a little bit more, but I'll say it for now, is that this is according um, to our own works. He will judge us by what we have done. But, but it's different but for believers and unbelievers. Let's start with believers first. Believers will face this moment before the Lord. They'll stand before the Lord. Uh, but if this is the moment they will experience, and we will experience, the term justification. When we talk about justification, it doesn't mean that, like if you were, when you become a believer, you come to faith in Christ, it does not mean that instantly you are made perfect, but, but the term justified means that you are now declared righteous. You, you have been called righteous. So when you stand before the judgment of God, he looks down, and now because you have been justified before him, this declaring of righteousness is now what makes the difference for me and you in this moment. Not only are you not guilty, you are righteous. That's the idea of justification. This is found in uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. I won't read it all. Uh, that would be a key scripture on justification and how he renders that to us. And ultimately, if you walk through the book of Romans, Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So ultimately, before the final judgment, if you have been justified, there is no condemnation for that person. Growing up, I always thought, um, or I didn't always think, but, but for a while I got the impression that when I came to faith in Christ, you know, you say all your sins are gone, so then when I get to heaven, it's kind of like already done. God's just like, okay, we've already worked that thing out, just come on in. But that's not the biblical picture here. So let me just carry it through for you here, is when, when the judgment happens, and you stand before God for yourself, he still hates sin just as much as he always has. And his wrath towards it is just as great as it always was. It's not like he's just let that thing go. It's that at that moment, then the Christ is the one standing in your place, and you are now justified because of him. Not like he said, ah, no big deal. 
the, the judgment will now only be changed because Christ is the one who is your righteousness at this point. So that's what I mean by justification for the believer. All right, so let me mention one thing here that's worth thinking about. And it's a bit nebulous. In other words, it's not, you're going to want me, I want to know more personally, but I'm not sure. I don't think the Bible gives us a whole lot more. Here's the idea that there will be some form of reward for the believer or varying degrees for the Christian. Now, ultimately, Christ is the greatest treasure. Oh, I mean, we get to heaven, he's going to be wonderful. In other words, like, that will be the prize. However, I'd like to just mention a few verses that there may be some sort of reward or benefit for how you serve him. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Some people, and I think you could take this either way, I think it's just worth thinking about. I'm not saying this is definite. Uh, we know the final judgment's coming, so that's clear. But you have the idea of this verse, you've got where it says, uh, Matthew 6, where Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. There's an investment you ought to be making in eternal things. Um, 1 Corinthians 3, without reading it all, has a passage, with fairly long passage, speaking about how things that are not done to the glory of God will be burned up. The things you've spent your effort on is going to be wasted. So I guess my point is just to say I know Christ will ultimately, ultimately be our reward. I do think, and I was just reading through, Allison has it in his book, I saw it uh, I think with Grudem as well today, is the idea of thinking through there will be some sort of reward for how you serve him here on earth. Some sort of treasure for you. There is benefit to not just saying, well, I'm a Christian now, I've got it all. When I get to heaven, no matter how I, what I do now, I've got everything I'll have for heaven. But I do think there's some sort of genuine benefit to your life serving here on this earth. Treasures in heaven, whatever those may be. I don't know what they are. I don't think the Bible's super clear. Um, but I do think there is something to the idea of living a life for him and there being some reward on the other side. Sorry if that wasn't super clear other than to say it is worthwhile to serve the Lord. Uh, there's judgment for unbelievers. So let's look at a verse here. What we're talking about is um, people who have not been justified. So when they stand before God, I described it in a moment ago, Revelation 20, really talks about this group, these people will actually have the judgment placed on them. Let's look at Romans chapter 2. you got it there in front of you. In fact, I'll preach this verse, not this Sunday, but the following. So I'll actually, you'll hear me talk about it some more if you're here, uh, not this Sunday, but May 5th. It says, uh, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, and listen to this phrase, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So, first of all, there's a sense of condemnation here overall. 
Um, and there's this sense of like storing up wrath. I'll say two comments about it. One, um, for, for the moments you feel like that somebody has done you wrong or something has happened unfairly to you, know that it's being counted by God. Like he's storing, storing up that wrath. He's, he's, he's counting it. So as people do unrighteous things, they are building their judgment. So there, there's the idea there. And then I would press it even further. This is the idea of, I'll show you, I talked about degrees of reward. There seems to be some language that leads to degrees of condemnation. In other words, you, you will be condemned. I, it's, it's going to be bad. But look at Luke 20 here. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, and the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor in the feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for the pretense make long prayers, they will receive a greater condemnation. There seems to be this idea of storing up wrath as if there can be more wrath stored or less, uh, this idea of a greater condemnation. So I, I do believe eternal punishment's going to be bad, but I I still think there, it seems like there is greater levels of it. Same thing with heaven and your rewards. So, something to, to, to mention, to notice, and to see as far as believers and unbelievers. Uh, the judgment of angels, I won't spend too long here. Jude verse 6, and the angels who did not stay within their, within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until what? The judgment of the great day. So there will be a judgment even for the angels. Uh, for those who have rebelled against God. And we've already talked a little bit about the fairness and the justice of this. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about the finality and the eternality of the final judgment. Um, I'll mention something. Let me say this before I talk about that piece. Uh, last week, the pastor taught on uh, millennialism, the millennium, the thousand years, how we approach that. Uh, I don't intend to repeat that at all. Um, he did a great job. So, uh, one of the things you may not be aware of, but we, we have a, each week, Christina records these. And if you go on to iTunes or podcasts or whatever, there's a, there's a podcast each week that has our church sermons, but there's also a podcast of this very class that we offer each week. You can go on to iTunes or other uh, podcasts, I guess, subscriber places that you could go. I just do iTunes. But I say that to say, um, if you have questions about the millennium, go back and listen to last week. But here's what I do want to say. In regards to the final judgment, if you are a-mill or post-mill, in other words, you believe we're already kind of living in this millennium, we're in the good days, and uh, the millennium's uh, right now, or the a-mill, it's kind of this um, vague, it's not an actual thing. If you're one of those, if you take on those two beliefs, the great white throne, the Revelation chapter 20, the, this final judgment, will occur 
when Christ returns. It'll all be together for those two groups. Because the we'll be done with a thousand years, it will end with Christ's return and the final judgment. There's nothing to happen after Christ's return before the final judgment happens. However, for as Pastor said last week, as most of us who are pre-mill, we believe there is a thousand years coming, uh, we hold a different position in the sense that the final judgment will happen at the end of the thousand years, the end of the millennium. So at the end of that thousand years, there'll be one last uh, ditch effort from Satan to battle. That's found there in Revelation 20 as well. And at the end of that will be when this final judgment occurs. Most of you are familiar with this way of seeing it as well. Um, but that's, that's the idea there. So I just want to give a little bit of a placement of if you hold one of those three views, where you would see the final judgment happen. So let's talk a little bit about how do we apply this doctrine? Major errors to avoid and how to apply it. Denying the final judgment. Say, is this really true? Do people actually deny that this is going to occur? Absolutely. Uh, a couple different things. First of all, I think in the popular culture, uh, just kind of the common thinking out there, there's not an understanding that there's something coming. But one of the things we battle is even within Christianity, we battle against a liberal take on some of these things. And I thought it would be pertinent, uh, you know, we just finished Easter week and usually people are publishing things. And so I don't know if you guys follow um, much news or Twitter or articles, but there was an article posted I, I meant to look back at where I it was. It was like New York Times or something. It was a fairly well-known paper. But it was an interview done with this lady. Her name is Serene Jones. She's the president of Union Theological Seminary, which is found up in New York, uh, a very liberal seminary. And so they walk through and ask her questions about the resurrection and multiple different things. And I happened to read it earlier this week, and when I was studying this, it triggered my, my mind. I, you think, well, does anybody actually say this anymore? Well, it was published this week that a seminary said this very thing. Uh, they asked her several things, like, did Jesus actually rise from the dead? And she was like, well, we don't really know. There was a comment. We're not sure if he actually came, from the, came up from the dead. And really, it doesn't matter. Um, the empty tomb is just a good symbol for us. And uh, the big thing is we need to do is love. That was kind of her chief thing. So then, let me read to you. I, I, that was kind of how she started. I'm, I'm telling you, it's where it's going. But this is a president of a, of a theological seminary here. So I'm not just, I'm not picking somebody who rejects God. So they ask her this question. What happens when we die? I'm gonna, I've got it directly quoted. Just what happens when we die? She said, I don't know. There may be something. There may be nothing. <laughs> My faith is not tied to some divine promise about the afterlife. People who behave well in this life only to achieve an afterlife, that's a faith driven by selfish motive. I'm going to be good so God would reward me with a stick of candy called heaven. For me, living a life of love is driven by the simple fact that, and here, here's the crux of liberal Christianity, the simple fact that love is true. I don't know what that means. 
But that's, I mean, that's what it, it becomes this kind of fluffy kind of statement. Love is true is, I mean, that's the core of what she's coming down to. And I'm absolutely certain that when we die, there is not a group of designated bad people sent to burn in hell that does not exist. But hell has a symbolic reality. When we reject love, we create hell. And hell is what we see around us in this world today in so many forms. So again, you say denying the final judgment, not just, I mean, this was this week published from a liberal seminary. But honestly, here's where it goes. When we press against the Bible and its truth claims, we abandon, you know, if you didn't, if you didn't have to be committed to the Bible, you'd probably be pretty quick to give up the final judgment. It's not really a pleasant thing to talk about. And so these people that have abandoned the Bible will abandon the idea of a final judgment ahead. A second thing I would say to avoid here is speculating about the details of this event. I know this is frustrating sometimes because we pull this card in this class and I say it, but I do want to press on it a little harder because oftentimes they'll say, well, I don't know a whole lot more. I don't mean that as a a cop-out. What I mean, I I think we have to be really careful not to speak beyond what the Bible speaks. And oftentimes I see teachers claimed Bible teachers, particularly around things about the last days and end times, claiming biblical teaching, but it not being grounded in the Bible. It sounds interesting. I mean, it, it sounds really exciting, however they lay it out, uh, but it's not actually a biblical truth. So, in other words, we need to have great reserve when we handle the Scriptures in regard to this. Um. The third one is interesting, being confused about the judgment that Christians will face. Uh, One of the interesting things that I've found over the years, um, I'll say it like this. There's a good book out now, I'll recommend it to you, that talks about sharing the gospel. It's a book called Gospel Fluency. It's one we've been interacting with some as a staff. And it's the idea of, I appreciate and think presenting the gospel in a clear and concise way like, Many ways over the years that we have uh, learned to do and learned ways to speak the gospel. God, man, Christ, response, whatever it might be. I think those are all really good. However, uh, the gospel ought to be something that we can speak in multiple different conversations. It, it ought to be like you speak a language. That, you know, if I'm, if I'm not fluent in a language, I just have a few phrases and then I just have to give that away. Oftentimes it's kind of how we are with the gospel. We don't really truly understand it in all its dimensions. So then we learn a presentation like most of you know Spanish. You may know como estas, muy bien, gracias y tú, and a few other phrases, and you got your Spanish down. And it's the same way you would think for the gospel. You are able to say these rote phrases, but then as soon as somebody rattles off a few words in Spanish to you, you're like, I don't know what you're saying, right? The same thing's true of the gospel. If you don't know, if you just know a presentation, somebody all of a sudden rattles off a few questions and you're like, well, I don't know, I just kind of know this piece. You need to think of the gospel as something that you can speak in multiple different angles, multiple different ways. Speak about it to people in different moments, in different times. 
Uh, so it's, it's fluent. It's like a language to you that you know and speak well. One of the ways in which I think a different angle than some presentations over the years, I've often, when you start talking to people about what happens after they die, I think an interesting question is if they believe in a final judgment, oftentimes I might ask somebody, you know, what, what does it take for a person to be saved? They would give me the response, put their faith in Jesus. And then I would flip the question. I might ask them, hey, what, what does it take for a person, um, when you stand before the final judgment of God, and God is going, if you believe in heaven and hell, and God's going to take a group of people and divide them and send one group of people one place, one group of people the other, what will be the defining factor that decides who goes where? And it's amazing to me sometimes how that from the first question they will have learned a few ideas from church, but in that moment they'll start talking about, well, do they have good works? Are they a good person? The same thing that saves you in that moment by faith in Jesus Christ, turning from your sin and turning to Christ, that same thing that happens that saves you is the same thing that justifies you on that day. It's not because your justification before God is not because you've lived some good life. That's just proof of the work God did to save you. And so when you stand before Him, it'll be because you had faith in Christ. So what I mean by this is that uh, don't be confused about how the judgment of God will actually work. How do we enact the doctrine? We should, we should avoid being obstacles to others and destroying them by your judgments. Here's what I mean, or here's what he means. He put this in there, but I thought it was helpful. Is that <clears throat> we need to let God be the judge and not us. Now, now I don't mean that you can't. There's a lot of times I might be able to say, I can see some things from your life, and I can give some feedback. That's one thing. But I also have to understand, I don't rest as judge and jury over the people I'm around. You don't, you're not the one exacting justice on them. You're just the one, if you need to speak truth, but ultimately God is the one who is the judge. So you need to be careful uh, to let God work things out. And I, I would say this, it's not, it's not 100% true, but I've learned, at least, I, I don't have as many years as some do in this room, but I'll say this for my uh, close to 40 years on the planet. I'm about four months away from 40 years old. Um, but uh, I'd say that oftentimes when I see injustice or things not working, time has a way about handling those things. Just things over time, they have a way about working them out. And ultimately, if they don't here on earth, the promise is they will at the end. Uh, the next one here is being motivated by the promise of future reward at the judgment seat of Christ. You should lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You ought to see the reward of heavenly things. It's, it's interesting to me, because sometimes I feel like convicted if I'm greedy for stuff. So you, say, you think that the desire or the greed or the desire to build and hoard things and keep is a bad thing. The desire is probably not the bad thing. It's what you place the desire on. 
I think that's the point of the heavenly treasures piece. It's not that you shouldn't desire treasure. It's that you should desire treasure in the right place. So don't just think, well, I shouldn't want anything. You should be ambitious and greedy and out for every bit of heavenly treasure you can make happen. You should desire heavenly things. I mean, that's what his point is. So there ought to be some part of us that desires these things. All right, so let's spend a minute. I've about used up all my time. Uh, but let's spend a minute with eternal punishment. I don't have as long here. I was told before I started that if I did all this, y'all would need a dinner break. <laughs> By some friends in the back. <laughs> all right, so let's talk about eternal punishment. One of the two results of Christ's final judgment of his people the other being eternal life. This sentence against the unrighteous consists, consists of a conscious retribution in hell forever. It's a heavy subject, right? This is hard because we can think of people that either have this in their path or that are already there. So what is the nature of this final judgment? First, 2 Peter 2.4 says that he'll judge the demons first. So before he gets to the unbelievers, he's going to deal with the demons first. Now keep in mind, you don't go to hell so that Satan can then punish you. He is there with a person, he's there with those being punished. So again, it's, it's not God versus Satan and they're equal beings here. It's God and Satan's down here. So all those are being punished and tormented as well. Then it becomes a place for those unbelievers who have died. I, I mentioned that earlier. This is where I won't go reread Revelation 20. But when we read that passage earlier, that was the idea for unbelievers who have died. They end up there. So, for the sake of a sobering look at it, I left a few phrases there that the Bible describes hell. Weeping and gnashing of teeth It is described as an unquenchable fire, continually burning. The worm does not die there, constantly rotting. Notice all of those are found in the Gospels. Most liberal people who want to get rid of this, they'll say, most times they'll say, well, Jesus, they have other truths they don't like. Jesus doesn't talk about them. This is the one that's hardest for them to get around because Jesus talks about it a lot. Revelation 14, 11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. So, 
All right, we'll come back to that. I've got, I've, I put a few heresies, people that deny it. Here's how they do it. The first one is universalism. This is the classic liberal way our world wants to look at it. Everybody goes to heaven. I mean, that's, that's how they see it. Maybe Adolf Hitler and Osama bin Laden and a couple other people they vilified pretty high, and everybody else makes it. If you're looking for uh, an attempt to justify it from the Bible, Romans 5, I'll read verse 18 first. You have it there on the paper. Listen to it. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for, here's how you would use the verse, for all men. So they would say it's applied to everybody. So if you underline, I would underline that last phrase if you were drawing out the picture. I put 17 there because it says, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who, don't miss the word, receive the abundance of grace and free gift of righteousness. So verse 17 clarifies this, that only those who have received this gift. The rest of Romans supports it, but I don't have to go very far, just one verse, to say that that's not what 18 means. 18 doesn't mean that everybody goes to heaven. 17, only those who receive it. Uh, this is one of those that we may not verbalize it, but more people believe this in practical life than we think. More Christians embrace this idea. We like to put people in heaven. We don't like to face the difficult truth that people might not be in heaven or the reality that this place of eternal punishment actually exists. It's unpopular to talk about, uncomfortable to think about, difficult to deal with. And so universalism is very attractive. The problem is it's just not true. Second and third one here are almost the same thing. I almost didn't put it on here. But essentially, what it means is those who have eternal life live forever like we think of them. And the second one means that the group who, it's conditional immortality. So those who accept Christ make immortality. Those who don't just stop being conscious. They're done. Life is over. The annihilationism is a more aggressive form of this belief where it believes God actually destroys their souls. One's a little softer version of it. The other one's a more harsh version. Either way, it's just the thought, hell is just, you're gone. Annihilationism is actually fairly popular in certain circles. Uh, but the problem is, is that we just read a verse about a fire that is never quenched. Oftentimes when it puts it up against eternal life, it'll say eternal punishment. And so this idea of hell being temporary or something that ends is not biblical. So um, major errors to avoid, one, the ones we just talked about. The other one here, a major error to avoid, is uh, anticipating gleefully the eternal punishment of the wicked. I think as Christians, we, we should never joke 
about people going to hell. I, I, I just, I think it ought to be a very real and serious, I, I don't mean to be morbid now, I just mean to be serious about this topic. I just think we need to take this very seriously. If we really believe in it, we don't ever want to make it lighthearted to people. We never want to make a joke about these things. So there's no sense at which you ought to, I don't care how bad that person is or how terrible they were to you or how terrible you might think that person is. As Christians, we are gracious people and should desire all to be saved. No matter who they are. From the worst, most heinous terrorist on the planet our desire is for them to be saved. We should not take any joy in their destination of this place. So here's how I'd like to end. There's three points here. It could go with, I mentioned in my, where I started, is that our goal is to take the gospel to non-believers. Our goal should be to plant churches so that there's a gospel presence wherever these people are. And then our goal ought to be to send missionaries to unreached peoples. This is why we do talk about unreached people groups. There are, peoples, there are people all around the world who do not have access to the gospel or a gospel witness near them. And we don't believe that they're okay. We, we believe in hell. Because if we don't believe that, we might as well just save us a few dollars. And not send missionaries to them. Well, our desire is to see them saved. I think that, um, I think it's worthwhile for us to pause, and this is how I'd like to end tonight. I think it's worthwhile for us to pause and end by praying for those we know that are not believers. And face... Uh, this destiny. Now, I would say it from this standpoint, I think we get out of the idea when we're, like, if you, if you go to share the gospel with somebody and it's uncomfortable or it's difficult or there's some sort of challenge in the conversation that might cost you or whatever difficulties involved, I think we forget about what's actually at stake for the person. I'm not, I'm not saying we should, we're not there to just to scare them into heaven. At the same time, I, I feel like hell is a reality that we ignore. Saying that, uh, I think it's worthwhile to pray for those that are not believers. So the way I thought we would end is I got my prayer guide for today. And I thought I would just use the prayer guide from our Who's Your One where we've been praying for somebody who's not a believer. I thought we'd just pray for somebody who's not a believer. Uh, I'll pray through this for us, and then um, when I'm done, we will have a short church conference. We'll hand out the um, handouts here in a moment, and then we'll have a short church conference after that. But I would like to end by praying this way. Mark chapter 10, verses 21 and 22 says this, and Jesus looking, looking at him, loved him. This is the rich young ruler, by the way. He loved him, and he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, 
and you will have treasure in heaven. Notice the phrase there, interesting, it tied in. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So let's take this moment and pray it. God, there is much in this world that wars against people coming to faith in you and giving their lives to follow you as a disciple. There's perhaps no greater obstacle than possessions and money. And Lord, we know that you have said it is difficult for the rich to enter your kingdom. And though the one person we're thinking of tonight, maybe more than one, people that we can think of that are not believers, they may not consider, that per- they may not consider themselves rich in this life. Lord, we know it's even still possible for, per- for possessions or the pursuit of those possessions to cause them to reject you. So Lord, we ask for these people we're thinking of, these lost individuals, we ask that you would show them the futility of pursuing things of this world, how they can be destroyed in a moment. We ask you to cause them to consider the reality of eternity. And we ask you to, to show them that you are truly the greater treasure worth more than anything else this life could provide. Lord, we ask you again, as we've already prayed to you for these individuals, we ask you to save them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.